sometime during the, uh, the 1940s and 50s, there was a, a British conference that was held to compare religions. The purpose of the conference was to bring in experts and theologians and really, really smart people from all over the world to debate what, if any, belief like was unique to the Christian faith. What is it about Christianity that's unique, different from other religions? That was the purpose of this, this conference that they were ha- having. And so they began to eliminate possibilities as they started talking and, and figuring it out. And like, for example, they said, you know, it can't be incarnation. Incarnation is just the belief that uh, heavenly or spiritual beings appear in, in earthly form. And they said, you know, it can't be incarnation because other religions besides Christianity have had different versions of gods appear to them, or they would say. They, they said, well, you know, it can't be resurrection because other religions have had accounts of, um, you know, someone returning from death. So the debate went on for some time. It was a, a several, spanned over several days, and the great writer, speaker, uh, thinker, C.S. Lewis, was invited to the debate, but he, he was late getting there. He couldn't be there the first day. And so he showed up the second day. And when he showed up, uh, you know how it is when you talk about either politics or religion or money or something like that. They've been together now for a day. So the, the, the conference is kind of getting a little bit heated. People are frustrated. People are arguing and debating. And C.S. Lewis walks in to this conference and he looks around, kind of sees what's going on. And he says to somebody that's there, he goes, what's everybody arguing about? What's all this about? And they told him, they said, well, we're trying to find Christianity's unique contribution to the world. We're trying to figure out what is it that makes Christianity. That's easy. Other religions. C.S. Lewis didn't even have to think two or three seconds. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, it's grace. It's grace. And after some discussion, everyone there at the conference had to agree that it's grace that makes Christianity unique from all other religions. And the idea of God's love being being free of charge, no strings attached, it goes against every instinct of of our humanity. Buddhist, Hindu, the Jewish covenant, or the Muslim code of law, all of these offer a way to earn approval. All of these belief systems, if you do what it says and you abide by the regulations or the instruction or the rule, then you will earn approval from whoever it is that you're worshiping or following. But only Christianity makes God's love unconditional, no strings attached. Over the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about grace. It's gonna take three weeks because everything inside of us will struggle to believe it. Everything inside of us will struggle to believe that grace is actually real and it's actually unconditional and it's actually no strings attached. And to be honest with you, the three weeks is not really enough. I believe that grace is something that we will wrestle with for our whole lives. Because while we have grace in one corner of our minds or on one shoulder in our lives, in the other corner of the ring battling grace is religion. And religion says if. Religion says, says if. But grace says no matter what. Religion says if you behave better, if you stop sinning, if you give money, if, if, if. That's what religion says. But God says and grace says 
God loves you. No matter what you ever do, no matter what you have ever done, God, preacher A.W., no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The famous writer and preacher A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask you this question today. What comes into your mind when I say the word God? When I say God, what do you, what do you think of? And we could list all kinds of different possibilities and different answers. For some in the room, maybe when I say God, you think of this, this disciplinarian, this this uh, Zeus-like figure that's up in heaven and he's holding lightning bolts, just waiting on the opportunity to get to throw out a few lightning bolts on your life, break the car down, give somebody cancer, make bad things happen to you. You you, kind of picture God as just waiting to hand out pain or punishment or consequences. I had somebody tell me recently, um, I actually hear this a lot, but I had somebody tell me recently when they talked about the idea of coming to church. They said, yeah, you don't want me coming to that church because if I came to that church, don't get near me because God's gonna strike that building with lightning. God's gonna burn that place down. Anybody ever heard that? You heard somebody say that? Maybe, you know, some of you have said that and you didn't realize what God was planning on doing in your life. But the person who told me this, I, I told him the same thing that I tell everybody who says that. I say, look, stop that. If God was gonna burn this building down because somebody really messed up or screwed up, showed up, He'd have burned it down a long time ago, right? Some of y'all, y'all showed up, God didn't burn it down. I know that no matter who shows up, God's never gonna burn this place down, never. So maybe you view God in that way, but for others, maybe you think of God as a a distant figure, kind of a, a deist type God. That yes, God did create the earth, and yes, he, there is a God, but but he, he kind of created it and then he just kind of let it go. And God's not lets it happen how it happens and lets it spin how it spins. And God's not really involved in the details of my life. Maybe for some of you, you, you view God as a, as a principal or a, a parole officer. You gotta keep checking in so you don't go back to jail. Maybe, maybe when I say God, you think of Santa Claus or you think of a genie in a bottle. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What if I told you today that God was not a disciplinarian in the sky with lightning bolts? What if I told you that he wasn't a distant figure? What if I told you that he wasn't Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle? What if I told you that God is a lovesick father? He's a father that loves you so much that he is sick just waiting on you to one day come home. One day come home. Luke chapter 15 tells us a really famous story about how God feels about us. Actually, Luke chapter 15 is a pretty incredible chapter because it's, it's, it's a chapter that's devoted to letting you know how God feels about you. Luke chapter 15 starts out with a, a, a story that Jesus tells, a parable about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and one of them got away. And so he leaves the 99 and he goes and gets the one sheep and he picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it back and he throws a party 
because he found it. And Jesus says the words, that's how it is for God in heaven. When one who was lost is found, that's even greater than 99 who were never lost. Then the second story he tells in Luke 15 is about a lady who lost, had 10 coins, but lost the coin and she searches until she finds it. And she throws a party because she found it. But then we get to Luke 15, verse 11. If you have a Bible, you can flip over there. If not, it'll be up on the uh, About Luke 15, 11 is a very famous story uh, about what the Bible labels the prodigal son. And we're gonna read through this story today. And I'm not telling you this story. You, know, you, you could preach this for four or five different reasons, different interpretations. But the reason we're looking at this story today is because I want you to realize how God feels about you. And in this story, he tells us, he tells us. So it starts out, Luke 15, verse 11. It says, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. How many siblings do we have in the room? Let me see your hand if you are a sibling. You got a brother, you got a sister. Yeah, most of us in the room have some siblings. I am the son of a man who had two sons. I have one brother. And uh, so my dad was a man who had two sons. And I can already tell you that any story that starts out with, there were these two brothers, it's going to end up with somebody doing something stupid or somebody fighting. Just something bad's going to happen because there was two sons. I'm just telling you, because I grew up in that house. I grew up in that house. My brother, um, when I was four years old, my brother was six years old, and my mom actually won this contest, and we, our family won a go-kart. And, uh, and so I had some incredible parents. I don't know what they were thinking at this season of their life, but they let the four and the six-year-old go play with the go-kart by themselves. And so we go, and how many younger siblings? You're the younger brother, younger sister, a couple of you guys. Yeah, you, you know what I'm about to tell you. You can, you can relate to what I'm saying, because I'm, I'm a younger brother. And so we're playing and we're supposed to take turns driving the, the go-kart. But my brother, the older brother who's riding the go-kart's not letting me on because he's just gonna keep driving. Younger siblings, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so he just keeps driving and then he'll pull back up and I'll say, you know, Jeremy, it's my turn, it's my turn. And he'll just laugh and, you know, pull off and go. And so in my four-year-old mind, I thought the best thing that I could do to stop this is to grab the back of the go-kart, turn, and I grab, won't be able to go anywhere. So he pulls up and I'm like, hey, it's my turn. And I grab the back of the go-kart like, you can't go anywhere now. And he gasses it. And instead of letting go, I hold on and he drags me across the parking lot where we're playing. I actually have a scar under my chin. To, it was a gravel parking lot, by the way. And so we go home and uh, I'm crying and I'm bleeding. And my parents are like, what happened? And Jeremy's like, I don't know. He grabbed the back of the go-kart. I don't know why he grabbed it. And they're like, well, why did you do that? I'm crying. I can't really explain it. But that's how it is when a man has two sons. My, uh, we, we were a little bit older and we were visiting my grandmother and my parents let us take our Sega Genesis. Anybody remember Sega Genesis NBA Jam? Come on. He's on fire. NBA Jam. You got it. You got it. That first... That first NBA jam, you got to get the Phoenix Suns. Well, I can talk about that later. But anyway, so, so we're playing Sega Genesis NBA jam. I'm really good at that game. I mean, I was at that time. I'm probably not anymore. But I'm really good at that game. And, um, and so I'm beating my brother. And uh, he would deny that, but it's true. I dominated him in that game. And, uh, but when I win, I don't just win. I, I celebrate that I'm winning. 
You know what I mean? I, I, I like to talk trash. And, and so I won a couple of games and I'm just kind of, you know, rubbing it in, you know. And, and so finally he's had enough. And so he gets up and he goes and he, he's getting ready to walk out the door and he still has the controller in his hand and I'm still running my mouth. And he turns around and he just heaves that controller right at me and hits me in the face and hits my eye, gives me a black eye. So I'm screaming, crying, yelling, holding my eye, you know, and I go out there into the living room and I'm like, mom, Jeremy just threw the controller and hit me in the face. And I'm screaming and I'm crying. And my mom says, Jason, you know what you do to him. <laughs> it's a miracle I'm standing here today. <laughs> Some of y'all younger siblings, you know what I'm talking about. She says, you know what you do to him. You get him going. Stop doing that. I'm like, okay, I guess it was my fault. I'm sorry. But that's what happened. Daughters, two sons, things break and people get in fights and it's just a crazy house. I actually have two daughters and, um, and I thought parenting was really easy because I got two little girls. And then I had a, a son who's 15 months old and I got another one on the way and like stuff's just breaking around the house now. I don't even, it just started breaking on me. He's only 15 months old. So a man had two sons, verse 12. And the younger son said to his father, because this is what younger sons do, I want a share of your estate now before you die. In other words, I want your inheritance. So this father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. Can I just say for a second that I understand, like there's a part of me that really relates and understands to why the younger brother did what he did. Some people say they went to the school of hard knocks. I went to the school of hard-headed. All right, anybody been to the school of hard-headed? You're like me, like I'm just stubborn and I appreciate what you wanna share with me, but I have learned in my life, most of the time, I just gotta learn on my own and I gotta learn the hard way, painful lessons. And I think that's kind of what's happening with this younger brother. Like that, that, that there is something that he's gonna have to learn and there's no way to learn it until he packs up and he leaves home. So verse 14 says, about that time, uh, about the time his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local far, a farmer to hire him and a man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And I don't, we don't have time to get in all the technicalities of it, but you just gotta know for a Jewish kid, especially from a Jewish kid who was raised in a, a home where there was enough money to have an inheritance, this is one of the most insulting things that you could ever, ever do, ever do. You, Jewish people don't, associate with pigs and here he is working with pigs and the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs even the pods, that he, pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything you know this is the way just so you know this is the way that sin works this is the way that sin works uh no and you may be here today and you may say like jason um you know uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good right where I'm at. It's not as bad as you make it sound. Okay, I'm not even gonna try to convince you because where you're at right now is a good place. But can I tell you something? The way that sin always works is that the money always runs out. The friends always run out. The fun always runs out. At some point, it always does. And it's not a coincidence that the time the money ran out, a great famine swept over the lamb because that's the way that it works. The car never breaks down when you've got money in the bank. Come on, somebody. And so here he is. Was sure he had the right idea, was sure he had a great plan. And now he is broke, alone, in a place he never thought he would be, thinking about eating foods he never thought he would eat. And that's the way that sin does you. 
I want to remind you that the Bible says that we have an enemy, a lion who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Still kill and destroy. That's his only plan. That's his only agenda. That's the only thing he really cares about is to destroy you. We, uh, we, we started our, our recovery group this last Friday night. It was an incredible time together. And, and one of the men in the group said something. I wrote it down because I thought it was so profound. But this is, this is what he said. He said, the devil tempts you and convinces you that whatever he is promising is better than what God has already promised you. Isn't that so good? And he says, you think it will make you happy, but at some point, no matter what, you end up miserable. You're so sure it'll make you happy, but you end up miserable. And usually it takes a pig pen, whatever that is for you, for us to come to our senses. And that's what happens in verse 17, Luke 15, verse 17. It says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father. I am no father. I've sinned against both heaven and you. And verse 19, I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. This is really where I wanna hang out today because we're talking about amazing grace. Everybody say grace. Um, say amazing grace. We're talking about amazing grace. And I think most of us in the room have a wrong idea about what grace is a wrong interpretation of what grace is. We read about a kid who, who goes out and he ruins his life and now he wants to come back home. But verse 19 tells us that he's convinced that his dad will never take him back as a son, never take him back as a son, only as a servant. And that's how a lot of us think that grace works. There's enough grace out there to save you. There's enough grace out there to get you in the back door and you can be in, but you'll never be a son again. You screwed up, you messed up too much. And I believe one of the most powerful weapons of sin is the, is the um, defeat that we feel after we fail. I think one of the most powerful things that the devil does to us is not just to get us going in the wrong direction, not to just get us doing the wrong things, but after we have done things that we said we wouldn't do or swore we wouldn't do again, it's the self-defeat that we feel. Can't believe I did that. Who's stupid enough to do that again? Can't believe that. And so what happens is it's not just the sin, it's the labels that we put on ourselves. I'm not even talking about the labels that other people put on us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're like the son who decides to leave home and things are going good for a while, but then we're not where we wanna be. And so we decide to, to change, but we can't change. Or maybe we are just, we start labeling bottom. And then when we look in the mirror, we don't see the person that we used to see. We start labeling ourselves, you know, I'm selfish. I can't have any healthy, good relationships in my life because that's just who I am, you know? I mean, I've lived long enough to know I'm just selfish. I've lived long enough to know that if you're gonna, if you're gonna be friends with me, you just gotta know I'm just a selfish person. I, I, I've ruined too many good relationships. Maybe you look in the mirror and you, you say, you know what? I lost my family. I'm an adulterer. I cheated on my spouse. I'm guilty. I did it. 
not even saying I didn't do it. I don't know how I gave into it, but I did. I don't know why I thought it would be better, but I did. I lost my kids. I lost my spouse. I lost everything. I lost my friends. I lost my reputation. You know what? That's just who I am. I'm, I'm an adulterer. That, that, that's, 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 what, that's what I am. You know what? I, I'm a screw up. I'm a screw up. That's what, everything I touch breaks. Every relationship I have breaks. Every job I have, I get fired. I, I, I'm just a screw up. I can't do anything right. No matter what I do, it never turns out right. What about this one? You look in the mirror and you say, you know what? I'm just abused. I was abused. I was taken advantage of. Somebody touched me. Somebody molested me. Somebody hurt me. And I've tried to live life and I've tried to do the things that I know to do, but I can't ever seem to go the right direction or do the right things because these demons, I just can't shake them. And, and there's something that happened to me. And like, I'm trying my best, Jason. I'm trying my best, God, but I'm just abused. That's who I am. That's what my name is. And maybe you say, you know what? I, I, I'm just, I'm an addict. I've tried, I've been to meetings, I've done the therapy, I've done the counseling, I've tried. I don't even know if I've got the energy to try again because I, I psych myself up every time and I say, I'm not gonna do that anymore and I'm gonna be clean and I make it for a little while, but then I fall back in and it's always chasing me and I just can't get free of it. That's just who I am. I mean, I'm not jealous. This is who, I'm not trying to you know, tear myself down, but I'm just being honest. I'm just being a realist. This is who I am. I'm an addict, that's, that's who I am. You know, I'm just, I'm not good enough. I'm insecure. I can't ever, I can't ever get it together. I'm not a good enough parent. I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not a good enough friend. I'm not a good enough spouse. I'm not a good enough employee. I'm always falling short. People are always telling me what I'm doing wrong. And I, I'm just, I'm a failure. I'm just not good enough. What about this one? I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Started out drinking, no big deal, but then I started drinking more. And then I thought, you know what? I better make sure that I can stop. And guess what? I couldn't stop. And it's cost me my relationships. It's cost me my friendships. It's cost me my finances. My life is a mess because of some stupid bottle. And I'm mad when I drink it. And I'm even madder at myself that I can't not drink it because I'm a screw up and I'm a failure. I'm an alcoholic because I was abused and I'm never gonna be good enough. And that's what sin does to us. That's what sin does. You start sinning thinking you're gonna have fun and the next thing you know, you hate yourself because you find yourself in a place you never thought you would be doing things you never thought you would do. And how did you end up at that place? Because you were sure when you started going in that direction, you were sure you knew what to do and it would be more fun and it would be more fulfilling. And if you could just get to what you knew you needed to do, life would be better. And it was for a while. But now you look in the mirror and this is what you see. You look in the mirror and this is what you see. You see a failure, selfish, not good enough, abused, addict, alcoholic who ruins everything they touch. And you think to yourself, you know, I, they keep saying God loves me. And I mean, I, I guess he'd probably love me enough to sneak me in the back door. Yeah, I know what you did, Jason. I mean, after all, isn't that what grace is, Jason? Isn't grace God saying, yeah, I know what you did, but I'm gonna give you enough to make sure you make it in. 
And we just carry around these thoughts about ourselves and these feelings about ourselves. Let me see that jacket there, Devin. Thank you, sir. And so then one day we realize, you know, what we need to do in order to have relationships and what we need to do in order to, 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 to serve God and to have God is we need to get it together. And we don't actually fix ourselves, but we figure out a way to hide ourselves. People say, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. Blessed. Oh, I'm blessed. So blessed. You lie. You're still an addict. You're still a failure. You're still not good enough. You're still selfish. You're still hurting. You're still reeling. You still cry yourself to sleep at night. But you can't let anybody know that. And you got to try your best to not let God know that. Because you don't want to stay where you are. And somehow, some way, you got to figure out a way to sneak back into that house. What speech can you give? What prayer could you pray? What is it that you could do in order to cover up, you know, whatever it is that happened? Like, how can you cover up the needle marks? How can you cover up the past failures? What can you do to cover up? We do it with God, we do it with our church, we do it with the people around us. But can I tell you, the Bible says that this is ridiculous. The, the, the Bible says that you confess your sins one to another. It makes you whole. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, everybody who's weary, heavy burden. Come to me, everybody who's screwed up. He says, bring it to me. And so we look in the mirror and we're so sure that this is who we are. We're so sure that this is how God sees us. And we know that he's forced to love us and we know that he's forced to give us grace. That's after all, that's what grace is, right, Jason? Grace is, okay, wish you wouldn't have done that, but I kind of have to let you in, so I'm gonna let you in. But you're not a son. You gotta sit at the kid table. You gotta go eat at this table. This is barn with the guys who work the horses. Don't you dare thinking about sitting at this table. This is only the table where the people who don't screw up all the time sit, not you. That's not what grace is. That's not what grace is. And can I tell you something? That's not how God sees you. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this, that this is not how God sees you. When God sees you, when God looks at you, he sees one thing. You know what it is? He says, you are a child of God. You're a son, you're a daughter, you are a child of God. And you say, yeah, but I'm an addict. And God says, you are an addict, but you're my addict. You say, well, I'm, an, I'm abused, you were abused. But can I tell you something? You're still my son who was abused. I'm a screw up, you sure are, but you're my screw up. You are my child. And so the son says, you know what? I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna practice my speech and I'm gonna let my dad let me back in the house, but I'm just gonna ask to be a servant. And God, father in this story says, if you're going to be in my house, there's only one way and that's to be my son. And there's nothing that you can do to be my son because you're already my son. You can't fix it. You can't clean it up. If you want to be here, you get to be here at the table as a child of God because that's what you are. See, grace is scandalous. While the world writes you off and defines you by the worst things that you do, grace is God saying, you're a mess, but you are my mess. You are mine. You're mine. You're my child. And the only thing that disqualifies you from receiving grace is you thinking that you can't have it. 
God says, I'm going to give it. The only thing you have to do to receive it is to want to receive it. And the only requirement is that you're willing to receive it. And you say, Jason, but you don't understand. Well, I got good news for you. God's not a parole officer and he ain't doing background checks. I wrote it this week on a blog on the website, but the only difference between a saint and the scandalous is just what the public's found out about so far. We're all messed up. God is not a police officer. He is a lovesick father and he's staring out the window just waiting for his child to come home. That's it. The things that people are saying about you and the things that you are saying about yourself, they are true, but guess what? Grace doesn't care. God doesn't care. He just wants you to come home. Grace is amazing because when we least deserve it, God pours it out on us. God pours it out on us. So in verse 20, the son returns home to his father. And while he's still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Can I ask you a question? How would a father see somebody coming from a long way off? He's looking, he's looking, staring out that window. I can't prove it, but you know, my dad, I grew up in a preacher's home and I heard my dad preach the story of the prodigal son about a hundred times. And I remember, I can remember it like it was yesterday. He would always say, you know, I can't prove it. The Bible doesn't say it, but I'd be willing to bet that every morning that dad got his cup of coffee and he went out and sat on that front porch and he prayed. He said, God, will you bring my son home? And he just stared at the top of that road just looking for anything, looking for any sign. And so his father sees him coming a long way off. Look at these next words. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. Here we go, 21. It's time for the speech. It's time for the speech he's been practicing. I got it, here we go. You ready, dad? I got it. Um, and if you sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, and if you could just, and verse 22 says, but the father's not even paying attention. He's got him in a bear hug. He's motioning, he's hugging his son, he's motioning to his servants. And he says, uh, go get the finest robe in the house. He smells like pig poo. He says, he says, go get a ring and put it on his finger. Go get sandals and put it on his feet. And I love 23, and kill the calf that we have been fattening. Somebody was planning on throwing a party. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. It's grace. Of course we don't deserve it. That's why it ticks off religious people so bad. We don't deserve it. It's amazing grace. I read a story recently about a girl who grew up on a farm in Michigan and real small town. She was raised by parents who were a, a bit old fashioned, so they tended to overreact to the music she liked to listen to or the day she came home and had a nose ring. And as she got older, the relationship got more tense and every time she would um, get grounded or punished, She'd go to her room, slam the door, and she'd think about how much she hated her parents, how she couldn't wait to get away. 
So one night she decided to, to act on these feelings that she had and she packed her bag, climbed out of her window, bought a bus ticket and headed to Detroit. She ran away from home. Her second day in Detroit, she meets a man who drives the nicest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch and arranges for her to have a place to stay. And one night turns into two and two night turns into 10. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. That her parents work and she feels kind of vindicated knowing that she was right all along, that her parents were keeping her from fun and exciting and people who were out there. So the good life continued on for a few months. The man with the nice car taught her to do a few things that men like and since she's underage and Certain guys like things like that. They paid a premium for. She was living in a penthouse. She was ordering room service whenever she wanted. Occasionally, she would think about her folks back home in that small town on that farm. But she could hardly even believe that she ever lived there. Her life seemed so great now and their life seemed so boring that she could hardly believe that that was ever a part of her life. Good life continued for about 12, 13 months, but after about a year, the first signs of her illness started showing up. She started coughing, the cough started getting worse. And all of a sudden, the man with the nice car who had treated her so incredible turned on her. She was amazed how fast the man turned. And before she knew it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a few tricks at night, but they don't pay much. And anything she does make goes to support her habit. When winter hits, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside of the department stores, but she doesn't do much sleeping because she's an underage girl in downtown Detroit. She's worried about her safety. And one night as she's trying to stay warm behind the department store and she's listening for, her, for footsteps around her, in a, in a split second, something changed. And everything about her life felt different. She, she, she felt like a, a little girl lost in a cold, scary, big city. She began to cry. No money in her pocket. She's hungry. She needs a hit. When all of a sudden her mind dropped summertime on the farm where she grew up. She thinks to herself, God, why did I ever leave home she feels this pain in her heart that she's never felt before at this point the crying has turned into weeping that's turned into sobbing and she wants to go home more than anything else in the world somehow she convinces someone to let her use their phone and she calls home she dials her home number and it rings and it rings and it rings and nobody answers she hangs up she calls right back, she dials the number, calls right back and it rings and it rings and it rings and nobody picks up and the person who's letting her borrow the phone's growing impatient. So she calls one more time, she dials the number, it rings, it rings, it rings, nobody picks up, it goes to the answering machine. She decides this may be her only shot, so she leaves a message for her parents and she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering, thinking maybe about coming home. I'm gonna catch a bus tomorrow and I'm gonna come your way. 
and I'll get there to the bus station about midnight tomorrow night. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus and go to Canada. So the next day she gets the money together. She gets on the bus. They start heading towards her small town from Detroit. It shouldn't take that long, but it takes seven hours because they're stopping at all the stops and what feels like a whole day, two days. She's on this bus for what seems like forever. And every time the bus stops and she sees people get off the bus and hug family members or friends, she's filled with fear and nervousness, excitement and guilt. She thinks to herself, would my parents even wanna see me after what I did? Maybe they wanna see me, but once they find out what I was doing while I was away, they'll kick me back out. What if they think to him, she keeps thinking, moved on. What if they didn't get the message? What if they're out of town? God, why didn't I wait until I talked to him? She keeps thinking, these thoughts are spinning around in her head. The bus finally gets to her small town and voice comes over the speaker and says, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we're staying, 15 minutes. She checks herself in her compact mirror. She fixes her hair as best she can. She notices the tobacco stains on her fingernails and wonder if her parents will notice too, if they're even there. She exits the bus. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. But out of all the scenarios that she imagined in her head, she never imagined what she saw next. Filling up that small little bus station was over 40 family members, brothers, sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins. They're all wearing these goofy hats and blowing these stupid noisemakers. And there's this sign hanging up that says, welcome home. She's crying, she's walking towards the crowd. She doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden the crowd splits and from the back, her dad steps out. They're both crying. He grabs her, he hugs her, she's hugging him. And she's trying to decide what to say when her dad says, get your bag, hurry, we gotta go. There's a bunch of people waiting at the house to start the party. That is amazing grace. And that is how your heavenly father feels about you. Religion says if, grace says no matter what. Let's pray.